Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. I'm here with Kim Polman. Kim, you are the founder and chairwoman of Reboot the Future. You're a mother, you're a cellist, you're an environmentalist. Uh, you also co-founded a the Kilimanjaro Blind Trust for blind people in Africa. You are a women, woman with many strings to your bow. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for inviting me. No, it's, uh, it's, it's wonderful to be here. And Reboot the, Reboot the Future is dedicated to inspiring people to live the golden rule. So perhaps we ought to start this conversation there with what is the golden rule and how do, how do we apply it? Well, the golden rule is actually a principle that is very ancient, uh, that has gone through various transformations throughout all of the religions in history. So the earliest people who professed it were Confucius, Socrates, um, Buddha, uh, in like four or 500 BC. They all came with this idea of, uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And it was each time an answer to the greed and the arrogance and the wars that were going on at their time to try to get people to, to calm down and get to their core of being human. And throughout all the development of other religions, they, they picked up on this and, and it, came out sometimes in a version of don't do to others what is hateful to you. And we've brought it up to modern times. So we, we profess treat others and the planet as you wish to be treated. Historically, the golden rule has really applied to human interactions. But uh, now that we're, we are much more conscious of the effect that humans have on the environment, we need to include the planet. <laughs> we need to be more thoughtful about what we're doing. Right. And because we just before we came up on air, that gave me a question in my mind is, okay, so if, I, if I'm treating the planet how I would wish to be treated, then at some level, I'm considering the planet like it's a human being. Well, it's life. Uh, we have an amazing earth, a unique earth, a, a unique planet in the whole universe. We don't know, we have not found life elsewhere. So we need to cherish that and value every single form of life, whether that be plant or animal. And everything is just so interlocking. Um, I, uh, the whole idea of the circular economy actually is based on the nature, nature's principle of that there's no waste. So this is an example of living the golden rule in connection with the planet. So we have to redesign our, our whole system of how we live uh, to not have any waste. I think it's a very inspiring model. I, <laughs> I've been to the Amazon and there's a, an animal that lives up in a tree, hardly ha has, eats anything, few leaves, doesn't have a lot of energy, so just 
basically lives in that tree and in one position, eats a few things. When <laughs> excrements go, when he wants needs to excrete, he goes very, very, very slowly down the tree and drops his excrement right at the root of the tree, very slowly goes back up the tree. But that little pellet is nutrition for the tree. He's given back to the tree what he took from the leaves. So it's this incredible, very slow cycle. <laughs> but it's beautiful. It's a great example of what we need to be more sensitive about. Right. Uh, so giving, giving back that which we've received from the from the planet yeah. and considering the planet in that way. Yeah, and this is what indigenous cultures have been doing for years. They they very much understand how the systems around them work and uh you know, to what extent can they harvest from their environment uh without losing the balance that it is able to regenerate itself or what can they do that helps it regenerate and they, cultures these these cultures that have been living for a thousand years in the same place they understand this perfectly right and we've lost that in our in our modern economic system right and and you talk in, so actually, let's talk then about the book, actually. So, um, yeah, tell us a little about the book that, that you've created as part of Reboot the Future. Uh, right. Well, the, the title of it is Imaginal Cells, Visions of Transformation. It is a collection of essays by great people who are doing great things to solve issues of the world. It's roughly issues based on the sustainable development goals from the UN. Um, so th let me first tell you the story of the imaginal cell. So it's about the transformation of the caterpillar to the butterfly. It makes an, another beautiful metaphor from nature. The caterpillar gorges and gorges and gorges during his life overconsumes, just like our overconsumption society that we've evolved into. He eventually reaches a tipping point and goes into his cocoon. So that's a little, it's a bit like Mother Earth now <laughs> is revolting against what humans have been putting into the system that have created a big imbalance. So we, we see that everywhere. Then when he's in his cocoon, he starts to decay because that system is unsustainable. And in that chaos, this imaginal cell, which is the correct uh, biological pronunciation, which were there all the time with the different DNA, but they were latent. That's really important. They were latent in the caterpillar. In this chaos, they start coming alive. So for us, that late, that's a good, it's going to become a beautiful butterfly, so it's goodness. We represent that as goodness. 
So that goodness is innate in all of us. And in the chaos, which is what we're seeing around us right now, that goodness is coming out. So those imaginal cells are being attacked, though, by this old way of doing things, which is a little bit like maybe the populism and these populist leaders and, you know, old ways of doing things. They don't like to change because they benefit. So they just keep, you know, wanting to fight against this new way that wants to emerge. But the imaginal cell uh, starts emitting a common frequency, the various ones. And so they, they find each other. And um, for us, that common frequency is the golden rule. So the people that are caring and thinking of others, they find each other. And so they start collaborating. And then eventually the caterpillar, the old way of doing things, gives up. And then out comes the beautiful butterfly. So we get to transform the world by by coalescing and uniting around this common principle. So in other words, by living the golden rule, uh, we become imaginals. We say imaginal because it's also about imagination. And then we transform the world and okay. we reboot the future. <laughs> okay. Okay. And so the rebooting pr process is these individuals with this particular, living this particular frequency, finding each other. That's that's the rebooting process, is it? And, yeah. And then building building something new. Creating creating something new. So all of our authors uh, are imaginals because they they do live the golden rule and um, they are working hard to to change whatever area it is that they're working in. So for example, uh, there there was an there's an article in there about slavery, modern day slavery. Um, there's a much greater awareness nowadays of this issue. But very simply restated, if you don't want to be a slave, then you should not have slaves in your supply chain. So that's important for the fashion industry, for example. Uh, they need to, to take the responsibility of where their um, clothing is being produced. The guys who own these companies or they don't want to be slaves. So how in your right mind can you possibly have slaves in your in your supply chain? Um, another example is um, one by um, the indigenous people in New Zealand, the Maoris, and their land was taken. Um, and there, there are Maoris still there. And fortunately, there's a a recognition of what has been done to them in the past and an encouragement of them to revive. But this is new. Up until recent times, there are a group of people that have been highly uh, disrespected. And so if we want to preserve our culture, we need to allow the others to preserve their culture as well. Right. Right. And okay, so so and I can see that uh, it, uh, the extreme, the golden rule, makes sense to me. I wouldn't want them to be a slave, so on, because I wouldn't want to be a slave. Mm -hmm. But what about? I suppose because I was reflecting on this, there may be other aspects where actually 
it, it may be a bit arrogant of me to think that somebody would want the same thing that I would want. Yeah. So maybe. Well, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. I get it. Yeah. But uh, we have to answer that question. Some people have rewritten the rule, call it the platinum rule or something. Um, I like to think that these great people, Buddha and Confucius and Jesus and, and, and Muhammad all got it right. <laughs> Okay. They they were really leaders, and their word is being still regarded um, as special. So let's stay focused on this ancient principle that you, unites us with the past and with each other. So to answer that problem, though, uh, we talk about three requirements to live the golden rule. The first is empathy, that we need to listen to what the other person needs. I think that's actually what was meant by all of these people. Of course, if you want tea and I want coffee, I'm not going to give you coffee, right? right? Yeah. I do need to find out what you want. <laughs> yeah. So then the second thing is to have courage to step in and do something. And then the third thing is to take action. So you, you listen, and then you have the courage and then you act. So that makes it, uh, that answers, answers that question of, you know, I'm not going to do to you what I want because you might want something different. On the other hand, there are some common values that we all cherish as human beings that we can count on, <laughs> like respect, um, tolerance, um, um, generosity, honesty, trustworthiness. These are common values all around the world. And if we're behaving in that way, uh, I think we can pretty much assume that most people want to be treated that way. And that, right. that's really, it's really gets to the core of the values of, of humanity. Common, right. common values as some people talk about them. Right. Okay. So it's less about trying to enforce what I think somebody else might want. And it's more about trying to live through a set of values that I believe are common to all yeah. humanity. I mean, yeah. it's, it's both. If you, if, if, uh, if you're, you are empathizing with a homeless person, uh, you may, if that's something that really touches your heart, then you can take a specific action to help that person. And there's so many issues in the world that you know we can't get involved in all of them, but get involved in something. Right. Yeah. And it's getting involved. So that's so that's that almost starts with the premise that because when we were talking about this before we came on air is that the, the is it right that the place to start is contributing to others or is it right that the place to start is is looking within uh in terms of what might give me the capacity to be empathic with others for example well i think we always have to start with ourselves we we need to take care of ourselves that's for sure um we need to love ourselves and uh, we need to understand who we are that that goes without saying 
that frees us to be confident that we can help somebody and uh you know there's there's enough stuff to do there are enough people in need that everyone has an ability to reach out somewhere in their lives mm. yeah uh, and it's certainly been my true for me that I've become less selfish <laughs> the more I've worked on myself and the more I've gone within to heal and that's allowed me to contribute I believe to others I mean you'd have to ask them <laughs> but I believe to contribute to others and, and I suppose sometimes I look at around the world and I see a lot of anger and a lot of energy directed towards what's out there uh, and I'm not sure how much this message of it starts within um, is is really uh, gaining traction as part of this broader conversation we're talking about. Well, I think the golden rule actually does not um, give you an excuse to blame others. I... I think we have to take the responsibility ourselves. You do I you do not owe me your love. I need to behave in a way that deserves your love. Even in a family. Mm. I I consider families to be the practice ground. So there's this balance between oh yes, we get to come home and relax and not, you know, try to be PC about everything I do. Uh, on the other hand, we do need to live together and um, it is the practice ground for behaving well and respecting and listening and, you know, learning all of these soft skills, as some people call them. The, the, the hard soft skills, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're, they're like super important. Um, but yeah, patience is just a huge one and forgiveness. Patience and forgiveness are just so crucial. Hmm. Yeah. So when, as an environmentalist then, when you see, because the example I was thinking recently, being in the UK, in London, the, the demonstrations in London from Extinction Rebellion, and that appears to be, you know, a lot of anger and energy directed out there, you know, people flying in aeroplanes or getting on the tube or whatever it might be. Uh, and it doesn't seem to me that this is a movement centered on self-reflection and and developing these these qualities. I mean, I, I may be mistaken, of course, but what what's your take on I mean, that, that example? Well, yeah, that's uh, that's very complex, of course, because uh, they're talking about complex issues and complex systems that evolve have evolved over a very long period of time. What they are asking people to do, which is actually what what we ask people to do by living the golden rule, is to just stop and think about what you do and how it affects others and the planet. They just want us to stop and think, do we really need to go on that airplane? Do we need to own a car? 
and drive around London, which I personally think is a ridiculous thing to have. Um, um, so, while the, I, their methods of disruption, um, yeah, that's a difficult one. Clearly, there are a lot of people frustrated that there's not enough action. And if I understand it correctly, they're quite frustrated at governments, mostly, which is understandable because governments are very have been very hesitant or they don't know what to do or they're afraid of their economy, they're afraid of job loss, whatever. They have, you know, governments are extremely complex. They have a lot of things that they have to deal with. So what they're trying to do is tell governments, we really, really want you to make laws that force companies, force individuals to do the right thing to save our environment. So I, I can't really make a judgment on their methods. Um, a lot of people are probably sitting up and listening, starting to ask themselves that that's, you know, I hope, I hope so, because there has to be urgent change. Yeah. But the, the role that government plays is by creating laws that equalize and encourage, stimulate change. That's not happening enough. I mean, in the U.S., it's just going the other way with Trump totally obliterating the Environmental Protection Agency. It's the opposite of what needs to happen. Well, if we consider that the primary vehicles for uh, ecological change are governmental, I suppose. Cause, so that's the question in my mind. Is, it, is that the place to look for this change or is it within? And is it about me as an individual connecting to my heart, developing my ability to empathize? Yeah, it has to happen at so many levels. You have to have the individual buy into this. But that individual works in a system and can affect that system. So, uh, you know, maybe it's your, your church who needs to do something differently. You know, maybe they all need to make, take a collection and put solar panels or they're probably not the biggest emitter of carbon emissions because the church isn't used, you know, all year. All, all, that's maybe a bad example, but, uh, Schools can do a lot of things to, uh, to change and, uh, the, you know, the, the, all the young people are begging their schools, please do something to make us better for the environment. Um, governments can make the laws, but they also need to do things themselves <laughs> with, with their government buildings and, um, so it's not, but it's also not just environmental. It's also social. Mm. So there's, there's governance, there's, there's the social thing, people, and then there's, um, environment. So it's extremely complex and you just can't get overwhelmed by having to work on all of it. But look around, ask yourself, how can I make the system that I'm in better?
Uh, but that's interesting. How can I make the system that I'm in better? But that, and could that system be oneself? <laughs> right. As the place to start. This is what interests me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it has to start. But then you become, you become an example. Right. Yeah. I think that's it. Yeah. That you become an imaginal. And then you inspire somebody else to become an imaginal. And then somebody else becomes an imaginal. And actually, to make it even more powerful, the three of you come together and you say, oh, we can do something really, you know, bigger here than just us as individuals. Yeah. What can, what is that? Mm. So, for example, I was telling you before we started about this book of the healing organization, and uh, there's an example in there of, of uh, somebody who was working in the tech industry. And there's a lot of stereotypes about the tech industry working really long hours and, you know, uh, not like these geeky guys who don't cooperate. And um, it's very financially um, driven and um, just bad, very competitive cultures, which actually end up destroying their souls. And this guy was in that industry and, well, family life is ruined and uh, this and that. So he, he <laughs> and a couple of his colleagues said, hey, wait a second, there must be a better way of doing this. So they started their own company called Menlo Innovations, which I recall is based in Ann Arbor, Michigan. They work a 40-hour work week. They embrace families. Babies can come in and children that are on school holidays and, you know, they set up a corner where they can watch movies and, uh, you know, they bring in uh, whatever for them to do and uh, organize activities and they form, uh, organize family events. But they have four, this is the most astonishing thing. And the same thing happened with some pe people who were consultants. They formed their own company and they work 40 hours a week, they only work locally. And what they what they learned is that uh, this consulting company, that actually they could have much more impact on the communities because they were because they were only working locally. They they developed this incredible network. And, um, and so then when there was a, a, a an issue community issue to work on, they could gathered together all kinds of people to focus on this. So it was a win-win situation. Families were happy. The workers were happy. The community was happy. So this, you know, we talked a little bit about global versus local. Um, yeah, we need both because it's great to have these kinds of ideas spread. On the other hand, if something's not right, people are unhappy in an organization. You just need to stop and ask, "What's you know what? What can we change to make to make it better for everyone?" Mm. And I think the golden rule for me, the golden rule will, will help you ask that question. Mm. And and have there been moments, or when have been the moments in your life where you've had that kind of 
thought process where you've stopped and you've looked around and you've said, okay, I need to do this or something's not right inside or... <laughs> yeah, well, uh, you know, I think raising three sons brought a lot of those opportunities. Um, she says diplomatically. <laughs> I, I love that. <laughs> but I, you know, there, there were one of my little rules was uh, if I found myself shouting too often uh, at them, then I had to stop and think, Kim, what are you doing wrong? How can you change the way? you're running the home <laughs> and disciplining them to make it more positive. I mean, you get to, you know, things, you, you gather, you find this new thing, and then, you know, you figured it out, and then they go and change on you because they get older and they get wiser. And so then you have to keep rethinking all the time raising children. Uh, you have to adjust your ways each time. And um, so... Uh, that for me was a really good learning ground, uh, teaching ground on how to to um, ask, you know, self-reflect every time. What what can I do better? Mm. Not not beat yourself up if you fail, but just use it as a learning opportunity. Okay, I can do better here. So yeah, it requires creativity. Right. Especially with three boys that are, are different ages. Yeah. <laughs> it reminds me of the, the concept of the the enlightened witness, which actually got from a Swiss psychotherapist called Alice Miller, and she talked about that one of the, that's a really powerful um, perspective in someone's life. And, and that can be yourself, right? It's just like your, your, your own, uh, yeah, your, your own enlightened witness there, or, yeah, able to sort of take a slight, step aside, look at your behavior, analyze it. Yeah, I think, yeah. Well, it, it, it's uh, tricky to self-reflect because we are ourselves and we, we think we're doing things. Uh, I mean, we like ourselves and so we think that what we're doing is the right thing. But we're not always aware of how it's viewed by others. And um, if things are not going right, we can't necessarily blame the other person. It could be us. And if you sit down and have an honest discussion about it and listen to each other, like, you know, you'll tell me what you thought, and then I tell what I thought. I, I remember when my, when my sons were in high school, um, how they had their battle every now and then and and I wasn't there I couldn't be the judge <laughs> they wanted me to be the judge and of course they each wanted me to judge for the other one and against the other one but I couldn't do that because I wasn't there so I sat them down at the table and I said okay tell your version tell your version do you have an answer to that do you have an answer to that and they could see very clearly that how they viewed it was not the same as the other person. And 
you know, just by talking through it like that, it just ended. And uh, what I what I really learned from the boys and the family and and my husband is that you males have this great capacity to get it out and then get rid of it. <laughs> and females tend to hang on and hang on and, you know, stew about it. <laughs> and, you know, it's not helpful. It's really not helpful. <laughs> so we need each other to help each other in these kinds of things. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think that's, that, that may be true that, that males have that ability to speak more openly with each other, more directly with each other. But um, I also, yeah, I think there's also something about that ability uh, to to really listen, right? To really listen at the heart level to somebody else. Mm. Uh, and I don't know if it's true that maybe females have that in more of the more of the time than men i don't know but i think often it is yeah. obviously it's not in all cases um, but um yeah generally uh well uh, some therapist i was talking to recently he was he was saying yeah he was sitting there in a restaurant um because he's a therapist he was he's always looking for new ways of doing things so he was at a restaurant he was reading a book and there were a group of women next to him and somebody had something going on and and the other women were asking lots of questions and you know really engaged and uh wanted to know more and letting her express herself and it was very enlightening for him because he said hmm man would never be doing that <laughs> we would not be asking questions he called it curiosity I thought that was a really good way of of putting it um, are you curious right yeah yeah no I can yeah I can imagine the scene and I can see how yeah I can't imagine exact quite the same dynamic with a, with a group of males. Although, of course, men are curious. It's just it's that, yeah, the paint they've seen your, your picture, your yeah, creative. There's always exceptions sense. to the rule. Well, no, it's not so much exceptions. I just think maybe it plays it, it does play out a bit differently. Like, yeah, there's a different energy and a different sort of commitment behind that curiosity, often, isn't there? Different quality to it. Um, but, yeah, so. So, but what you're describing there is having some, you know, almost holding a mirror to somebody, to your sons in that scenario, right? And now allowing them to see each other and to see themselves in the way that you held space for them, I think is a really, really powerful thing that we can do for each other. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's active listening, what comes yeah. in before a mirror mirror listening or something or, or active yeah listening. yeah well, active listening is when i repeat right what i've heard and did i get it right yeah uh but and and so that's an elusive but even just the broader context of showing people who they are mm -hmm. right i mean i remember very early my brother pushing me to go and do this self-development weekend which i had no interest in doing and i thought it was, was kind of losers at the time and but he was like <laughs> no no richard you should do it and out of that, actually, through meeting a few people through that journey who had me look at my, my drinking, and this was over 10 years ago, you know, my relationship with alcohol. So that was like another mirror. And then that ultimately had me dive into a long sort of per long period of 
much deeper therapy and self-work. And, and now as I reflect on that and developing the skill over time to be more self-reflective without the need for you know, a therapist or a coach or somebody mm -hmm. to tell me to go look at X, uh, although that still sometimes happens. Oh, you know, but but what, I, what I'm hearing from you is that's something that you seem to have had a skill in. If you always had that ability to sort of stop and look outside of yourself. Well, maybe because uh, I've been playing musical instruments for since I was a kid. And to play a musical instrument, to take lessons and learn an instrument, you have to know how to listen. You have to know how to, uh, well, listen to the instruction being given to you on how to improve. Um, but then you ask, when you're playing it yourself, you have to listen to yourself and say, oh, is that the way it's supposed to be? What can I do to be better? And so there, there, there is this training. I, I haven't thought of that before, but you're, you're right. There is this training that goes on that, oh, I'm never, I'm never going to be, uh, you know, I might achieve a certain level. I might achieve competence, but l let me never stop there. I can always do better. I'm right. not, I'm an amateur, but, uh, I know professionals always, always are striving to do better. Even though you would listen to them and it sounds impeccable, they always are striving more and more to, to just, you know, get that bow sound just a little bit better or make that change in the direction of the bow just so much smoother or, oh, I'm playing a sforzando, should I, you know, how am I going to do this? And do I make it scratchy or do I make it gentle or, you know, is it right at the beginning or is it later, a bit later in it. So there's, you are constantly asking yourself questions. It's the same with learning a sport. Yeah. How many times has Roger Federer practiced his serve? He still practices his serve. Yes. After all those competitions he has won. So we need to do that as well in our behavior. Well, that's what's different, right? Yeah. So, so there may, may be people who are very adept at this, doing it for developing a skill, but have you taken that and applied the same process, but to my behavior? Yeah, I mean, that, that's, um, I think in, in a family situation, uh, yeah, there are moments when we will lose our patience and, and fail and say the wrong thing, or when we're at the work, we might just, you know, be not feeling well and we'll say something and it kind of came out wrong. And so you know, we need to have some uh, understanding of that, that that might be the case. But um, and if, if I'm the one that did it, I have to be honest with myself. Honest with myself, honest with you. And, and then forgive myself forgive you, ask you to forgive me. Yeah, that's an important place, not just looking at it, it's looking at it from a place of forgiveness and acceptance, not looking, not looking at it from a place of judgment. Yeah. Yeah. 
No, why do we judge all the time? Right. It's what we do. Yeah. <laughs> We're taught to do that. Yeah. At yeah. school. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to judge, oh, did I do this math problem right or wrong? You know, did I answer these questions in history class correct, right or wrong? Um, uh, and we've created such a hugely competitive system yeah. at school, in our work. So com competition is good if it can uh, unleash your ability to do your best. But if it gets to the point where it's so competitive that you no longer collaborate. So one of these examples in this healing organization really addressed this issue. That was the tech, actually the tech guy. He, he had this interesting, developed this interesting uh, system of rotation so that there wasn't one person who was 100% or let's say 80% responsible for the creation of a new product who would take all the glory but who everybody was so dependent on as well so he had this system of rotation where every week you'd, you'd have a different partner that you'd work with and uh, so you worked on all kinds of projects but it infused such new energy every time and then there was this you got to know everybody on the team and uh, if someone was sick, anybody could step in. And it created, it took away ego, which we constantly, get, get, constantly gets in our way um, of collaborating and all, I mean, all kinds of things. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, th I thought it was a really interesting way of dealing with this finding this balance between compet having competition, a good spirited competition, and um, so individual achievement, but then also collaboration it was genius. Right. So you're still getting some level of competition between teams, but because yeah. you're doing this rotation, uh, you're, you're not creating heroes in the culture. In the same yeah, way. and yeah. because you're working together with people yeah. you you want, and it's not any individual that gets the glory, yeah. then you want collaboration and you want others to succeed. So you, you're, you're, you're helping others also do their best. Yeah, that's interesting. Because a former guest on the podcast uh, uh, who runs a, Tom, who runs a company called Vizi in uh, mortgage brokerage in Holland, uh, mm -hmm. is, in, has, has institutors intending to institute a similar system of a rotating mm -hmm. CEO, rotating mm -hmm. roles in the company. And actually, he's inspired by a lot of mechanisms that have served us in our uh, national states and the way that we organize states, for example, you know, we, we rotate presidencies, prime ministerships. In, mm -hmm. So a lot of these systems that we've developed at the national level, we haven't, we're not adopting at, mm -hmm. at the company level. Mm -hmm. And he has this view that a lot of our companies are run a bit like dictatorships are, right? The, mm -hmm. the tyrannical system, <laughs> systems of management at some level. Pretty old fashioned model. Right, yeah. And yeah. yet, why aren't we applying more of what we've learned about uh, building democracies inside yeah. of organizations, which is, uh, yeah, mm. I think is an interesting mm -hmm. perspective. 
Yeah. Um, so that's so that you've, you've described some of those moments in your in your personal life. Was there a similar moment that had you create reboot the future? Well, it, it really started with the book. So the book came first. And yeah. Then, right. Right, and so my co-author Stephen Vasconcellos Sharp. Uh, we had gotten to know each other at the time he was publishing a magazine about um, compassionate businesses and wanted to make a book out of this about leadership and I said hmm there's a lot of books about leadership out there how about if we have this collection of essays but then they base their story on the golden rule and so he liked that idea. And so at the time was when uh, the encyclical by the Pope came out on climate change, which I read. Um, and that really, really inspired me a lot because at the very root of what he's talking about is the golden rule. And then he added the idea of including the planet because he's very concerned about the whole earth and all life on it. It was very beautiful for me that he questioned the word in the book of Genesis about man gave man, uh, God gave man dominion over all the earth. I never liked that as a Christian. I never liked that word because I lived out in the country and I thought, okay, I, I just don't really want think that we know more than the birds or the you know the insects or whatever I don't, don't, we now know the dangers of pesticides and fertilizers <laughs> they're destroying the bees and the insects and there's this whole part of the ecosystem and if that completely collapses we're in big trouble so uh, his encyclical was really inspiring to me, which is why we added the planet to our version of the Golden Rule. And in fact, well, I reduced that book to, to a few paragraphs, <laughs> which is what we sent to our, our potential authors. Um, and um, yeah, so, we, so then we put this book together. We, we launched it at Davos not at the World Economic Forum, but in the fringe, in two different venues. Uh, the, uh, well, Bill McDonough, who contributed to the book, he's the guru of, of circular economies. Yeah, I love that book. Yeah, so he, 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 he designed a space there um, called the Ice House, and an organization called The Hub organizes a series of panels and speakers and events during that week. And then there's another one, Shelley Zalis, who has the female quotient. And so we had some panels uh, at those. Um, but the amazing reception we got uh, encouraged us to carry this farther than just the book. I don't think at that point uh, there had been any discussion of any kind of spiritual idea at all at Davos. It's generally pretty hardcore it has historically been pretty hardcore business focused of course it's changed a lot over its 40-year history 
and they they are really focused on trying to change the world but as far as the spiritual component up on that hill in the middle of winter that was a pretty much a first so uh, a lot of people reacted positively so that's why we decided to start the organization reboot the future because what we we are hoping to do if most more and more people know about the golden rule uh, we can collaborate with one another and 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 reboot the future so this idea of computers you know turning it off and starting it again uh, so it functions better mm. is the inspiration we need to change our systems we really should just dismantle uh, some of these uh, systems that were developed in the 40s after world uh, 50s after world war ii which served the world wonderfully but they're a little outdated now, so maybe sending the metaphor. We're yeah, de with a new a new set of enlightened values and principles, could be different. Well, businesses mm. need to really, really rethink. In this book, going back to this book, the Healing Organization, they give about a dozen case examples of of businesses that have really ask themselves some really hard questions what in heck are we doing who are we hurting is there a way that we can change this from hurting to healing and helping mm. it's powerful yeah it's a very powerful idea and it's always based on the golden rule and such a and, and it very different you know we we're here to generate shareholder value we're here to help people heal i mean those are yeah. very different ideas about what a business is yeah but and the thing is when you build an organization that is helping and healing you actually become a better and more profitable organization that's been proven their business all in all of these cases their businesses doing well this I think it was the tech industry example Menlo Innovation yeah I think it was Menlo Innovations uh, they survived all of the economic crises they they uh, all of the thing they just kept on growing through all of it mm. yeah well that's very soon I don't know if you're aware of the book Maverick by Ricardo Semler mm -hmm. and the business he had in South America that was very mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, created on similar principles, I, I would say, and they had a similar story of surviving economic crises and continuing to grow. And yeah, I think it creates, th my, my sense is that when you create human connection, strong human con connection between people within an organization, it becomes much more resilient. Yes, to absolutely. That's what we're, we're, was brought out in these examples. Yeah, I, th I think people are able to create solutions for difficult problems in a way that's just not possible where there, where there aren't that level of trust and listening and empathy. It just, it just creates a Well, think about, think about yourself. 
when you're in a situation when you're where you're angry or frustrated your brain blocks and you don't know what to do and but if you can relax be not fearful not angry then then you allow creativity to take place and you come up then with a better solution that's how your brain works that's neurology <laughs> yeah uh, yeah and i think and, and the counter examples often used where we have these organizations run by very strong leaders and perhaps there isn't such a focus on human connection and so on and they can be very successful but my thesis would be there is that they may be very successful in the short run when they've got a winning idea but the first time they hit some kind of trouble there isn't that same level of trust and connection in the organization in order to overcome that yeah you won't have the support yeah yeah mm -hmm. you talk in the book don't you about social cohesion as being a and social coherence so it's being an important idea mm-hmm yeah yeah hmm so that's so you, we've had book one I know you're working on the second version right well um, <laughs> we we keep talking about that <laughs> it's definitely somewhere there uh, we have a lot of more things that we want to talk about of course, since the first book came out, a lot has changed and evolved. Fortunately, uh, there's more and more imaginals around than there were even just a few years ago. Uh, so what, what we're doing now is how can we take those articles uh, that are in the book, take them out, um, maybe update a little bit and then put them out in different ways, like through our educational platform that we have through our uh, through other like podcasts um, through social media so there's a bit more that we can do with book one and then in more modern ways that can reach more people than through a book uh, bring in new examples that's really where we're going okay so there could be eventually a, a book because it's a great thing to give people but it's not it, it's not going to be a money maker <laughs> so uh, that's okay that's okay well we'll um, I've, I've been calling it an expensive calling card <laughs> but it opens people's thoughts it's 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 always inspiring to, to to come across a reader who has said, "Oh my, you know, I've got, written all over the book. I've read everything, and I love love it." And uh, really, really gives a simple principle that can change the way you do things. So I'm going to give you an example of a friend of mine uh, who who is a private equity investor. And he has a crazy character and um, had a lot of 
bad deals and would make a lot of money and then he'd lose a lot of money and uh, you know he was had an element of turbulence inside of him and so when he read the book and we talked about the golden rule it eventually dawned on him that he could really do do this private equity thing in a different way so he changed a lot about how how he he functioned and well, one thing he said was if he had to let someone go who wasn't performing properly he would do it in a kind and gentle way a helpful way when he was looking at companies to invest in he got to know the owner and decided he only wanted to deal with people he liked then uh, because he had closer relations with the the owner of the business he didn't have to have his staff stay up all night making lots of charts and you know presentations because he was getting you know more direct feedback uh, let me see where oh yes so when when they did have a deal and gained their profit he would take 40% he'd give 40% to the person working closest with him and he'd share 20% with one of the other support you know the other support team some that was just an example but a more equitable um, sharing of, of the profit um, and yeah there were just other things like that so it was a significant change in how he behaved himself and it, it started with him his own epiphany mm. and then he said okay how can I do this better in a more golden rule way I thought it was a beautiful transformation yeah and started with him yeah and his it has to how he's oriented yeah. and then he asked him the questions he self-reflected well he looked around and said okay what are the problems here and what can I do to make it better these are the these are the stories that really inspire me because I think this is where it really happens it's it's not when somebody achieves you know some policy change for a government I think it it really starts that with those kinds of stories yeah I mean yeah it it, it really does have to have happen in terms of climate change or even well let's take so I love Thomas Friedman's book uh, thank you for being late which came out at the same time as our book I asked him actually to contribute and I don't know if you know Thomas Friedman he's an American um, contributor to the New York Times but he's also written a lot of books uh, maybe you remember uh, from a number of years ago the world is flat that was quite a famous book mm -hmm. where he That's was explaining globalization in positive terms he was really an optimist about that then he wrote another book later on like oh you know let's rethink globalization and um, so this book thank you for being late explains for for 345 pages um, the danger of technology where where it's so powerful now that one person can actually destroy all the earth 
uh, the, the financial system, which is benefiting a few, and it's so powerful, it has so much control over the world, and is creating huge inequity, and then technology, which is, uh, I said technology, finance, and climate change. All of these global forces all happening at once, which are really, really frightening um, and causing a lot of destabilization. So what's his answer? He's an optimist. His first answer is the golden rule. More and more and more of us need to live the golden rule. And he asks, is it naive to think that this simple principle can really make a difference. And his answer is, it's naive to think that we can live without it, that we will survive without it. And then the second answer is building communities. So you live the golden rule and then you start working at the community level. So building communities, whatever whatever community it is. So isolation, he found out from the Surgeon General in the United States, is the biggest uh, illness. Oh, uh, yeah. <sighs> yeah. And, and what's that, that? There's a book by the is a British academic, actually, or British writer, that misconnections or lost connections, this, yeah, the research on depression that shows mm. it's significantly yeah. um, mediated by other lack of social connection. Mm -hmm. lack of... Yeah, it's funny because social media was supposed to do that. Oh, right. Yeah, exactly. But it of course, we've become to good. Make well, connections. well, the problem with social media, at least in my experience, is it disconnects me yeah. from myself. Right? And mm -hmm. if I'm disconnected from myself, what hope yeah. have I got from? Yeah, um, yeah that's probably the right way of looking at it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Social media takes me in the other direction. Because it seems to create these silos and you get, you get narrower and narrower and narrower and narrower. Um, and then that's where you get isolated. It's the extremism we started talking about. Yeah. It's really created a lot of extremism, encouraged a lot of extremism. Yeah. Which is then isolating. Yeah, but I, and I think that, that starts with that that's really just a manifestation as, as I see it for people losing connection with themselves firstly yeah. and then yeah. losing connection with the, the communities yeah. around them and then the breakdown of, you know, and then it all sort of unfolds from there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, so the book may or may not happen. There's going to be other things you do with book one. Uh, oh, I, I thought I must mention Jamie Dimon. Is mm -hmm. he now in a did city? Does he count as an imaginal with his well, declaration? He's, of... he's starting. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. <laughs> there's there's some in the financial industry that are starting to wake up. Yeah, and I'm just thinking for those listening and not aware. So he, chairman of the Business Roundtable yeah. in America, mm -hmm. and and uh, they've started to move away from shareholder value, right? It still exists yeah. in there. It is an industry that is focused on money it, by nature. Yeah. That's the focus. That's what they do is trade money, right? So I can I understand where that becomes your 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 value. Because <laughs> it's always about increasing the value of your money, which is okay. 
but um, you know, let's find a more equitable, honest way of doing it in a responsible way. So you know, taxes are paid, and you you know you contribute to your the health of your communities and you know benefit more people rather than than a few. Yeah. So that's that's where that system has gone. That needs to change. Yeah. But that that requires government policy as well as self-awareness. Yeah. Mm. And then to bring it back to the personal, do you have a sense of where your your edge is right now in terms of you personally living the the golden rule? <laughs> well, you know, there's always your own personal challenges that, um, you know, conflicts um, that you face with people. And um, it's, you know, the more that you can live that, you come, you come out in a better place. And yeah. But also in, in, in Reboot the Future, you can't, you have to make sure we, we just are constantly working to make sure that we're, we as, as a group of people are living, living our values, that we don't forget about it. My, for example, my, my daughter-in-law works for BUPA and uh, she's a lawyer and at the, uh, with, on the lawyer team for, for the headquarters, the main headquarters here in London and uh, she says they have such a strong sense of value it's written all over the walls and they talk about this all the time at their meetings uh, is this in line with our values we have to, it's very easy to first forget about that in the daily competition so to, 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 it takes a bit of strength and confidence, self-confidence, that sticking to those values will actually give you the, the right answer and the long-term answer. Yeah. If you're measuring short-term value, monetary value, you won't get to the long-term good. They're in conflict. Hmm. Yeah, self-confidence to stick to your values. I think that's yeah. an important one. I do mm -hmm. think that's important. Self-confidence. It's a, and it, it, at moments, I can imagine that it it's an act of faith. And 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 leadership. In fact, well, it's your husband, isn't it? Paul Pullman in the book talks about we need more we need more trees and we need more leaders. Yeah. But I think you're pointing to something there that mm. that idea self-confidence or or. Is, ability to stand up and, and lead and stick up for our values in the moment is takes also, courage takes courage it's also it, yeah yeah takes courage so I did and again I'll reference to my former guest Tom who talks about yes of course it's important that each of us show up as leaders and it's important that we create systems that make that enable that uh, at the same yeah time. I think yeah. what you said before um, about empowering people in an organization to make a difference is really important. I think we're all leaders. 
at something. Everybody is a leader at something. If you're, if you are a caretaker of small children, you are a leader. If you're a librarian and, uh, you know, you, you have to get the books back on the shelf, you're a leader. <laughs> if you are uh, a garbage man, you know, picking up the garbage, you're, you're a leader. <laughs> you're working as a team, but you're also a leader. So no matter what we're doing, um, you know, if you're, you have children and you're doing Boy Scouts, you're a leader. So we all have an opportunity to be a leader. And how are we going to do that? So that it's helpful <laughs> rather than hurtful. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Wow. <laughs> this has been a very inspiring conversation. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. And for people who want to learn more, it's re rebootthefuture.org. Org. Uh, and they can order the book from the website. Yeah. Any, anywhere anywhere else you would point people who are inspired no. by this? Our website. Keep it focused. We've narrowed it down to our website. Good. <laughs> Super. Well, thanks very much, Rich. Thank you. Thanks once again. <laughs> Thank you. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.